we're going to look at um, Acts chapter 2. It's the same section of scripture that we, well, a little bit different that we considered last week. Um, yeah, right. Uh, this church building. I'm thankful for the church building, by the way. Okay, let me take my jacket off. It's hot up here. What are we looking at? What I'm going to do, well, let me take verse 22. The sermon itself will be 25 through 28, really. But 22 to 36 is a, sec- is a unit. Hear the perfect word of our perfect God. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held under its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He's at my right hand, so that I'll not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you'll not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, prophet. He knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, this is your holy word. I pray for myself, Holy Spirit, that you would quicken me, enliven me, grant me extra strength, Lord, lucidity of mind just clarity of speech, and that the words of the sermon would be the words of this text, the words of your Bible, and that for all of us that we would have the requisite faith to receive your word, to love it, and to practice these things, to live accordingly as we see that we are to live lives that adorn the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, if there is anyone here that does not know you savingly, Holy Spirit, may you give them the great gift that you have given us new life in Christ. And we pray this in the Redeemer's name. Amen. What I want to do with this particular passage, as I mentioned, I want to mainly look at the Apostle Peter's use of uh, David's Psalm 16. I want to say he he takes actually Psalm 16, 8 through 11, as I think is what he's looking at. And what I want to do is kind of normative for me. I want to do macro, micro. We'll take a big picture view of what the Apostle is doing, and then we'll kind of walk through some particulars that we um, find in Peter's use of the psalm and and what the Word of God is teaching us. So first, kind of a macro 
view of, of what's happening here. A, a little bit of context from what we just read, 22, 23, 24, that was last week's sermon. You remember what's going on here is Peter is busy preaching on the day of Pentecost to his fellow Jews, and he is testifying to them that the long-awaited Messiah, which means anointed one, or Christ, is this Jesus. And he's very pointed that it's not anyone else, it's Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus who, had a, a, who was a real man, he had a real soul, a real body that enabled him to die for real sinners. He's called Lord. Uh, he's really God, come in the flesh. Uh, we sang one of the beautiful hymns yesterday at the wedding, God himself is with us. That's Emmanuel. So Peter is keen to tell the Jews on Pentecost, he's here, Christ is here. And the long-awaited Messiah, the one who will crush the serpent's uh, head with his heel, is here. And he's unique, Christ is. As as we've mentioned, he's fully God, fully man. We're going to see this later in the text. That's That's the apostles' purpose behind using Psalm 16, and then in the second section, which if, I, if the Lord gives me to live until next week, we'll pick up the second section where he uses Psalm 110. You have the humanity of Christ that he dies, and then he, dies in our, he rises in our nature, Psalm 16. And then you also have the deity or the divinity of Jesus. This is, um, this is Peter's use of, of Psalm 110. And the Lord said to my Lord. You remember Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, such and so, such and so. And he says, well, why does David say of Christ, my Lord, if he's merely a man? And my Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand. It's the divinity. So the only way that you're able to receive this truth is if God the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see, gives you faith. So that's in here. So Jesus is, the Apostle Peter is busy preaching um, Jesus. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as far as the two natures of Jesus Christ. The key truth for our section that I want to hone in on, the 25 through 28, it's, it is dealing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he brings in the very last section of Psalm 16, hence my title. What's my title? The title is Jesus, Our Joy. And so he's busy saying this Jesus is the Christ and he, you crucified him. He died for sins. He rose for our justification. It was impossible for death to hold him. Impossible. Because it was God's purpose always to raise his Messiah up from the dead as a testimony that God accepted his sacrifice on the behalf of his people. And that's why David will say with the forward-looking faith that, that in, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, joys forevermore. Hence the notion of Charles Spurgeon was very keen he's written a lot about this that Christians of all people should be the happiest people and I was joking about this at Sunday school my wife asked me this week what are you preaching on and I said I'm preaching on joy and she said how are you going to do that and only our wives can say stuff like that to us and I love her madly and she meant it very she was jocular as she said it she understands she's been married to me, I don't know what, 36 years, 35 years. I maybe have a melancholy bent, maybe. But what we're looking at is, the last hymn is, Jesus is a man of many sorrows. Look at the text. He suffered, he died, he was crucified, now joy. That's the scheme. So the reason that we can have joy in Jesus Christ 
is because he is a man of sorrows. As John Owen writes a famous treatise, The Death of Death. The reason death will not hold any of God's people, any, because of this one. So th- this is gonna, we're going to crescendo on this, and this one I can preach. This one I can preach. Look at the joy. The joy is Jesus rose from the dead. And the, the implication is, therefore he's the Christ, therefore believe in him, therefore when it comes to your dying time, you can go to your grave, you will rise again. That's joy. So I want you to think of that. The greatest source of our sorrow, the, the greatest enemy of any human being, the Bible says it, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, the great enemy, the last enemy, death. If I could take away your greatest sorrow, your greatest fear, that would be your greatest joy. Hence, John Owens, the death of death by Christ's death. And he rises. Heroes, all those who die in Christ will live. Do you believe this? That's this. And so the, the apostle Peter is preaching the Christ who suffered and died, but the Christ who rose. And we're going to get at next week. And he's very, he's very logical in, in, in the estates of Christ. Suffering, death, burial. And then we go to, to exaltation. Resurrection, ascension, session. It's all here. So if the Lord gives me next week, we're going to look at the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Peter brings this up in Acts chapter 1, roundabout verse 8, and then the session of Jesus. J.C. Ryle says he, he's not a political preacher, but he has one political maxim, and J.C. is my favorite. He says, Christ is king. That's his political maxim. Christ is king. Look around, beloved. Does it not look very tumultuous in the world? We are on the brink of World War X, right? Jesus is king. Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's ruling and reigning everything by his spirit, by his power, all for his glory, and ultimately for the good of his church. So when we come here, Jesus is the source of our joy, and it's for all the believers. So that's kind of a macro sense. And related, related to this, Christ, death, resurrection, the joy that we can have in him, it's very significant for us, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time, and I hope I'm not too laborious, So Peter last week um, referenced an Old Testament passage to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, it was Joel 2. Maybe the week before. I can't remember. He preaches Joel, Joel 2, 28 through 30-something. And now here he's going to use Psalm 16. And then the next section he uses, he actually uses a couple things in there. He's going to use Psalm 110, My Lord said to my Lord. And then he's going to reference, oh, I used to know it. It was 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 17, where it's God covenants with David. He said, I'm going to put one of your descendants on the throne and his kingdom will have no what? End. It's going to be forever and ever and ever and ever. It's a messianic promise. It's not Solomon. It's King Christ, the true prince of peace. So he he throws that in there. And so what is he doing in his preaching? He's quoting Bible, Old Testament, and then he quotes Bible again, Bible again, Bible again, and he says, Jesus fulfills all that. I want to step back and I want, I want to look at what Peter is doing in reference to preaching the Bible. Um, I was not raised a Protestant. I am a Protestant now. One of the principles of the Protestant Reformation is sola scriptura, Bible. We see Peter doing that even in principle. 
He says, the Old Testament scripture says, and now we come under the inspiration of the very same Holy Spirit. He says, the New Testament scriptures affirm that. They say. Who is it? Billy Graham. Billy Graham, when he was young, I think when he was young, was more on track. Certainly when he got old, I think he went squirrely places. But when he was young, um, he would say, he would preach like this. You can see the old black and whites. He would say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Now, you can do that kind of preaching in a silly way. You can be silly in that. I think you can be wrong in that. But that's a fairly normative way to to preach the Word of God. The Bible says. That's what Peter's doing. Why Why do you put your trust in Jesus? Why do you think that you'll rise again after you die? The Bible says. Why do you think Jesus is the Christ? The Bible says. The Bible says. Now, the Bible is the Bible. We'll just talk a little bit about Bible preaching, which is what Peter's doing. And this is significant, especially as we're talking about the business of resurrection from the dead, especially as we're talking about the, the, uh, the acquisition and the enjoyment of joy, real joy in Christ. The Bible says, the Bible says, it's very important when we start, why do you start where you start? Everyone has a presuppositional starting place. Everybody. Everybody's either listening to... What's, you got to serve somebody. Everybody is listening to someone's voice. It's either the voice of God or the voice of man. It's either the Bible, it's the voice of man. And so when we, we come here, we're looking at Bible preaching, which is what he's doing. The Bible is God's redemptive revelation. It contains both law and gospel. It is God's will for our salvation. It's revealing to us our, our sin and the wages of sin, the penalty of sin, but he shows us fundamentally the face of our Christ, that we would love him, believe him, and be rescued by him, and that we would have this joy. That's what the Bible is about. And so when I say Peter is preaching, the Bible says the Bible says, we have to understand what the Bible is. Sometimes people say, well, the Bible is my only rule for everything. Well, the Bible doesn't speak about everything, does it? Does the Bible teach you how to change? I'm not going to be, I'm not being silly, I promise. Because I'm, I'm trying to make a point. Does the Bible teach you how to change a tire? Or plant a garden? No. So sometimes people say, well, you're going to find a Bible verse for everything. Well, on what the Bible speaks about, yes. But if you want to learn how to be a doctor or fly a plane or change a tire, go to vocational school, join the Navy. Uh, but the Bible doesn't speak on those. The Bible is, reveals what God says we are to, re, to, we are to believe about him and what duty God requires of us. Does that make sense? Because sometimes people get silly. Oh, you're all lucky dipping here and you're all lucky dipping there. No, I, I like Toyota trucks. The Bible never says buy a Toyota truck. I, I'm being silly but some people slip into that error. The Bible will tell me absolutely everything about every occasion. No, it will not. But it will tell you everything that God wants you to know about himself salvifically and what he wants you to do by way of religious practice. It will tell you that. And that's exactly Peter's purpose. Peter's not pe- teaching people how to fish anymore because he's not a fisherman of fish. He's a fisherman of people. And he uses the word of... Does that make sense? So he is preaching principally the scripture, 
The Bible is God's word on God, redemptive revelation. It teaches us about religious and moral life. He's essentially manifesting what we would argue as Reformed Christians, that reformational principle of sola scriptura. Why do you believe what you believe about God? Peter says, Joel, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Why do you believe what you believe about Jesus? Because John 3.16 says, if I come to him, I'll everlasting life. It's an expression of his, of his life. Because John 6 says, if I come to him, he'll never turn me away. And he'll raise me up on the last day. And, and the Bible says that I'm going to have everlasting joy in his presence. I, I do want you to think about that. Living your life according to the Bible, religious life, what you believe about Christ, what you believe about your moral life, if you live that, what Peter is preaching, I'm going to tell you something in advance. Jesus actually tells me to tell you this. It would be wrong if I said, listen, come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Serve Jesus. And life is going to be easy, squeezy. Everyone will love you. Your kids will love you. Everybody will be happy, healthy. It's going to be awesome. It's almost the exact opposite. It's almost the exact opposite. If you're walking around saying, I believe what I believe about Christ because the Bible tells it to me. And anything else I I reject. My practice of my religious practice with my wife, in my worship, with my kids, the way I vote, is informed by this book. If you do, do that, beloved... You are going to be in the minority. You will be in the minority. Not just with the worldling, but with the churchling. Being in the church doesn't make you in Christ. Right? The majority of the church does not believe what they believe about Jesus because Joel says it, Psalm 16 says it, Psalm 110 says it. They don't. Give a little quiz. What do you all believe about this? Well, I believe there's many ways, and this is the professing Christian. Really? Doesn't Jesus Christ say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me? Yeah, but what about the good Buddhists? Professing Christians, right? Why do you all do this? Why do you all do that? Well, I just, I just think so. So if you do, if you do, and I think we should, I think we should live according to the Bible. But if you do, you're going to suffer for it. Um, you're going to suffer for it. There's a big old wide road, and it doesn't lead to a good place. And there's a narrow road that goes right through Christ and those who live for Christ according to his word. That's the only road that goes to heaven. But, but, but I, I, will, I will say this, because I do want to bring out that joy aspect. So if we are laboring to be Bible Christians in truth, and we've said this before, is one thing to say you're a Bible Christian. But I want, I want us to do this. Take, we've talked about this before. Stop and just ask yourself, How much Bible did I read today? How much prayers over my Bible did I do today? I'm not picking on anybody. Because when I do it to myself, I think, what what am I talking about? Right? So, if God the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to convert us to Christ, God the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to sanctify us in Christ. So when we're talking about pleasures, seeing God, loving God, knowing God, the nearness of God, is Bible is Bible. Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy what is truth? Word. Word, word, word. John 17 for the sanctification. Romans 10, 1 through 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. 
So it's the word that God the Holy Spirit uses for our being a Christian, and it's the word that God the Holy Spirit uses for our well-being as a Christian. And yes, we'll be on the narrow road, but there's something else in there. If I were to ask you, if I were to ask you, well, why do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Why do you, why do you believe he rose from the dead? Why do you believe you'll rise from the dead? Why do you? And if you say to me, well, is the answer, well, because I think so. My, my grandmother taught me that or my mama taught me that. Is it that? Is it that? Beloved, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. It's kind of a hard business, this living business, is it not? How can we have joy in this hard living business? And then we, when we come to the end of our life or the end of our loved one's life, it, it's kind of hard plowing. How can we have joy in that? Is it because I think so? Is it, is it because of that? What are we going to say? The Bible says. And I don't mean in a silly way. Because when we say the Bible says, that is because God says so. Oh, beloved, God is going to get us all. You're already probably already done this. We get spun around, even as true believers. We don't even know our own name. So there's no, everything is shifting sand, except this. Except this. Why are your sins all forgiven? Because Christ was crucified for my sins. And that's what you're going to live on. Yeah, yeah. And, and you think Jesus is in heaven. Oh, I know he's in heaven. Why? Because it says he's at the right hand of the Father. And you're going to live on that. Yeah, I'm going to live on that. Don't you want to go to my atheistical five-week seminar? No, I don't. And you think when you die, to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord the moment you die? Yep, yep, I believe that. Why? Because the Bible says it. Well, didn't you listen to Hawkins, Stockins, Schmockins on the internet? No, I, I don't watch those guys. The Holy Spirit convinces us this, this is true. And then we live upon it. And then when we get away from this, and it's just I think or I feel, then what's the difference between the man saying, I think Jesus is the Christ, and another guy says, I think Allah is God. What's the difference if it's just I think I feel? One man's opinion, another man's opinion, take a you pick, as my Italian neighbor used to say. Take a you pick. Is it just take a you pick? Is it being bounced from one man to another man? If it's not Bible. If we do not start with the Bible says, it's just, remember Elijah said to the people, how long will you, will you falter between two opinions? Beloved, we, we, we can't be moved off this. This is, this is Peter's point through the whole sermon. Bible, Bible, word of God, word of God. Don't move off it. Not on who Christ is. Not on what God requires of us. Nothing. Bible. Not in an obnoxious way. And again, we're not talking about the other things. God, Christ, salvation, hope, heaven, Bible. Other than that, you are just whistling Dixie. This is just one man's opinion versus another man's opinion. And beloved, we not only do it in religious things that we profess, we do it in our practices. I'll give us two ways that Christians get moved off of Bible, God's word. I'll use abortion and homosexual marriage. I don't usually do this, but it's, I think it's, it's worthwhile. Sometimes Christians say, I'm against abortion, and they, they argue like this. When does life begin? And then the, they'll bring in the eugenics part and that crazy person, Sanger, Margaret's, and they'll bring in that. All of which I agree with, by the way. 
And then the arguments go on and on and on and on and on. But they miss the starting point. And what's the starting point? God says, don't murder. So that's it. That's just it. That's just it. That's just it. And what about the gay marriage? Christians, Christians do this. We do it. We forget this. We forget what Peter is doing. We do it. Well, you can't procreate, and it's not good for societal cohesion and all these other things, which I agree with all that. But what did they miss? God created Adam, and God created Eve, and that's a marriage. God says. And that's just it. Jesus is just the Christ, that's it. Marriage is marriage because the Bible says. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if, if, if you let anyone, or we let anyone, take away the man of sorrows from the Bible, we lose all of our joy. So that's the macro view. Now let's descend down and spend some time how Peter unpacks or uses Psalm 16 on, on um, the business of our, our joy. So what we find right away in verse 25, David says of him, but, but back up a little bit. Back up to, um, to verse 22. Who's the him that David says of him? Who's the him that he's talking of? Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by, with miracles and wonders. Verse 23, this man, uh, God put him to death. God raised him, for David says of him. When David is speaking about the joys, and he uses the gladness, the exultation, the hope that he has, he, he, he expresses himself as a believer in Jesus Christ. So when I talk about the joys that we have as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ is believer. David says as a believer in Jesus that he is the Christ. David has hope. David has, is exalts, exalts in his heart and in his tongue. David has confidence that when he dies, he'll be with Christ at the right hand of, of glory. David, the believer. So this is, so if you say, well, I know unbelievers that have more joy than you. I just mentioned my older sister, who's a Unitarian, that I love. I love my sisters so much. I have two, older and younger, younger, not believers, not Christians. And my older sister's a Unitarian. She's a quasi-minister. She doesn't believe any of this, none of it. She thinks Jesus is a nice guy. She's way happier than I am. She has way more joy than I do, externally, constitutionally. That's not this. That's not this. Pick the happiest, most joyful unbeliever you know. I don't know who they are. I don't know. Pick them. Would you trade places as a believer? Would you? What will happen to their joys as they go through life and as they come to conclude their life? What happens to... And they're joyful in what? I'm healthy as a horse. I get cash busting out of my pockets. My kids and grandkids are healthy as horse. They get cash busting out of their pockets. Man, I'm joyful. What happens at say you live, Psalm 73. You, you live healthy as a horse with more money than Heinz has pickles. And you conclude life. Are you still joyful? Will you still exult in your tongue? No. No. 
The Bible says for the richest man, your money's going to sprout wings and fly away. I watched my father go from poor to being a multimillionaire to dying poor. He didn't have a penny when he died. And he died. 18 months, got a disease, died. All his money got sued, gone. We don't believe that. The money will sprout wings. The health will sprout wings. But the joy of the believer, this is what he says, the joy of the believer in Christ is forever. It's permanent. It's going to go from the joy that we experience here imperfectly, it's going to crescendo. We, even the little bit of joy that we experience as Christians and the little bit of hope that we really enjoy as Christians in Jesus, the little bit that we do, it hasn't even entered into our minds. Am I right with that? When we leave the valley of tears, this holy wasteland in which we do enjoy tastes of hope and joy and exaltation, and when we leave here and we're in Beulah land, what? Joy unspeakable, peace unspeakable, happiness unspeakable, love unspeakable. And can it ever be taken away from us? Jesus says that he wants us to know him that our joy would be made what? Full, full. Can you be weeping because of the world, the flesh, and the devil and hopeful and confident and joyful in Christ in the midst of it? Yes, you can, beloved. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Peter did it. Paul did it. And so here we have King David. He's a man after God's own heart. You say, well, sure, he exalts. He's King David. I mean, the guy's practically sinless after all. I don't know about that. (laughs) So can we say, well, yeah, if you're inspired and just like a rock star like King David, then you can have this hope. Then you can have this confidence and this joy in Jesus. Then I was raised a Roman Catholic and I, I knew Bible stories. And I remember becoming a believer and then remembering that, and David was a man after his own heart, God's own heart. I thought, what? How does that work? He basically extorts illicit whatever with Bathsheba, and then he kills the husband. <laughs> what? What do we call that? A rapist and a murderer. Then how does God say that you're a man after my own heart and I love you? Because of Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. This is the believer's hope. This is the believer's praise. All of David's sin, everything. Certainly, too, the the grosser ones I just mentioned. And they're gross. They're gross. Any of you military guys, if you were, say, a commander, and you told your subordinate, this is how it's going to go down, female subordinate, you'd be in the brig. Right? Right. So it's not a mutual simpatico relationship. It's extortion by a superior to an inferior, and he did it. And then he kills the husband to cover over it. And then he says, I see Christ, and he's my pleasure, joy. How does that work? David had faith. David had faith. Forward-looking faith, that's the whole point. To the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does that do for us? This is the good news. What does that do for us? Having faith in Jesus, as David had faith in Jesus, such that he could say, even though people could say, you're a murderer. And what could he say? I'm forgiven. 
I'm forgiven. All of my sins have been washed away. I, I've looked at the Savior. Oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? I knew a man that I loved very much that for a lot of his life was a, he was a brutal guy. But I loved him very much. And I told him the gospel and he told me he believed that and then he died. And one of my other family members called me and said, did you say to this man that he'll be in heaven when he dies? I said, guilty as charged. For simply believing in Jesus, I said, guilty as charged. Don't you know he did thus and so and thus and... Yeah. Yeah. I know that. I know that. But he's not that. The moment David believed, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Liars, drunkards. God saves homosexual offenders? He sure does. God saves fornicators and adulterers? He sure does. In Christ. And so this man looks to God and he says to God, you are my joy. You are my hope. And there's a connection between what he believes and what he says. But I want you to think of that. This, this is the believer's joy and confidence. Do unbelievers want to look at God, the God of the Bible? Do you, I hope that we share as believers. We share the love of God in the Christ of God to other people that don't know him and to people that do know him because we're so hurting. And when you tell people this and you say, God has made a way. You can be forgiven. You can be called his son. You can be called his daughter. And you tell them about Christ. What are they? they, they the, the criminal wants Jesus as much as, as, as the criminal wants a righteous judge. But when the great change happens, what's the new inclination of your life as a believer? And it's not perfect. We're all up and down, up and down, up and down critters. It's not perfect. But when I say the name Jesus, he died for your sins. He rose. He's at the right hand of glory. You're going there. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. What happens to you? Our brother Tony was praying. I'm like choking back tears. Christ is bringing me to Christ. He's talking about Christ. Because we're new creatures. It's a great change. So it's not stuff that's our joy. It's not health that's our joy. It's God that's our joy. And he says, I set you continually before my face, oh God. Faith is not something, sometimes people do this. Well, I believed in Jesus once when I was seven. I threw a stick in the fire and, and, and I'm going to heaven. I've never go, I don't go to church. I don't read the Bible. I don't, I don't pray. But I threw a stick in the fire when I was seven. Where is that in the Bible? <laughs> Where is that in the Bible? Faith is not this one critter that you do one time and then you go live like a heathen for the rest of your life and think you're going to heaven. Jesus says you'll know them by their what? By their fruits. The fruits of what? The fruits of their life. The fruits of their song. I continuously set God before me. And this is the believer. And, and we, we encourage our faith. And there's a connection between what we believe and the words. And he says... My, we, Inwardly, I love you, I adore you, and then outwardly, I exalt in you. Beloved, there's a connection between our heart and our mouth, and I kind of think it works both ways. If you're super sad, super sad words are going to come out of your mouth. And if you have bitter stuff in the heart, then bitter stuff's coming out of your mouth. So you think, ah, oh, it's just words. Mm -hmm. This is in Matthew chapter 12. 
And when we love God, it comes out of our mouth. And I'm going to say this. It, we actually encourage ourselves. Our self-talk concerning God either encourages ourselves or discourages ourselves. Here is David the believer, which is what, what Peter is using. The believer is encouraging himself in his Christ. We can help our joy or hurt our joy. I'm an expert at hurting my joy. I'm a professional at it. I'm like, remember that, there's a guy, I don't know, William Robbins or whatever his name is, the donkey, the donkey, E-R. Life is never going to work. It's all whatever, whatever. It's whatever, right? And you do that all day long, out of the mouth, out of the mouth, out of the mouth. And what happens? What does David say? I look at God. He takes his eyes off. This is why I'm against watching the Russia and the politics. Don't even, I don't even throw your, throw your computer in the, in the bay. Get in the Bible. Get on your knees. And look at Jesus. And I challenge us, and I'm going to preach to myself. If you are depressed, if you're downhearted, if you say, I have no hope, and you're a Christian, I have no hope. Here's what I'm going to say. Get Psalm 16 out. And look at all of the glorious things, or Acts 2, look at all the glorious things that Jesus is for you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to sing it. I want you to sing it. Not just say it. You've got to first, maybe if, to warm yourself up, you can, you can say it. But I want you to sing it. Martin Luther talked about music next to the gospel was like the greatest gift he believed. Music next to the gospel was the greatest gift he thought God gave people. I want you to sing it. I have a lousy singing voice. So in the morning, during the week, when I'm here alone, I walk around this place and out in the field, and I sing. And only the critters get to hear my bad voice. And what happens? Oh, I have hope in him. Look what he does. I have hope. I have great joy. I know God is my pleasure. Beloved, you will encourage yourself in Christ. And I encourage you to do that just to say the name of Jesus, to sing the name of Jesus, to sing all of these glorious things, which is what he's doing. And, it, it, and he, he says at the very end, which is his point, Jesus has defeated death. It was impossible for Jesus to, to stay in the grave because God said that he would come out of the grave. If you say to yourself, I, Martin Luther, again, I have Martin Luther on the brain, People think if you're a believer, death is nothing to you. You could just, death is nothing because you're a believer. You know what? I've seen a lot of people die. That's not true. That is not true. And if you say it to me and I come to talk to you and you're looking at your wife, it's not true. It's not true. Death is no joke. Martin Luther was afraid of his own death right up to the time of his death. Right up to the time of his death. Why will it be impossible for death to hold you in Christ or, or your loved one in Christ in the grave. Why will it be impossible? It cannot happen that you will remain in the grave and that you will be separated from God forever and ever. Why will death not be victorious over you? Impossible. Because Jesus said, where I am, there you will be also. And to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. And to be in the Lord's presence pleasures evermore. I don't usually do this, but turn in your Bible to Isaiah 35, I think. I'm going to read Isaiah 35, and I think this will be a fitting end to the sermon. Isaiah 35, I think. 
Believer in Christ. You you need more joy? I do. Let's read this one in faith. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Listen to this. Encourage the exhausted. Oh, amen. And strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool. Thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. And Oh, I love this next section. A highway will be, will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. Ready for the best part? But the redeemed will walk there, and the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon our heads, and we will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Glory, glory, glory to God. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.